we're, we're doing the marks of a spirit-filled church. We'll pick that up again next week. Um, we started the Lord's Prayer last week. Not the Lord's Prayer, so we started this week. We started communion. Thank you, Ricky. And we started communion. I'll have a Coke, if you could just give me the Coke instead. Uh, who wants to drink water? <laughs> uh, we started communion last week. That'll be a two-part series, which we'll pick up the next communion. And I'm just going to launch a new one today on prayer. I, I was going to be a mini one, just a couple but I think it may be a bit longer than that. So what I'll do, we'll have them just, just dotted around in between our Galatian series that starts in just a few weeks now in March. We'll start that. So I want us to look at the Lord's Prayer. Why, let me ask a question. Why would you think I want us to look at the Lord's Prayer? Well, precisely. Yeah, that's precisely the point. It's because Jesus taught us to pray look most of you got kids here i'm imagining yeah look we all we all know that when our kids were little we that we expected there was a certain level of flexibility in how they communicated with us if a little four-year-old uh, called jerry jerry i mean that would be quite amusing wouldn't it and acceptable i suppose because it's it's kind of cute you know, even if he says, you know, come here, give me, here. You know, we, we, we can kind of pull up with that because there's a little child. Now, one on 10 years, and you've now got a 13, 14-year-old, and he's speaking to his dad, to you, Lee, and goes, Lee, come here, come and get that for me. I mean, I mean th there's something wrong then. You see, it's no longer cute. It's actually quite inappropriate. And I want to show you, friends, that, that, that just as we can relate to a human story like that in relationships between a father and a, a son, or a mother and son, a carer and son or daughter, I'm just trying to get big, absolutely PC here, have I, have I missed any combination, uh, that, that, I'm, that we can relate to our Heavenly Father and see how there are similarities in how we relate to him. I want to show you in the Bible how Jesus demonstrates to us that just as we've learned protocols in life, in how we relate to one another, so there exists a spiritual one in how we relate to God. I want to take you to two passages. Uh, Naomi read a couple for us, but I want to take you to Luke first. Let me start off in Luke. Luke is another, it's possibly a repeat, but it's more probably another episode of Jesus' teaching on prayer. And this is how he starts. So he's teaching his disciples. They, they come up to him, one of them, one of his disciples. When, it, when one of the twelve goes and speaks to Jesus, what can he be sure about who he's representing? The rest, the cowards especially. Okay? It's not as though he's the only one who wants to know. It's more like, go ask him. You ask him. Go, no, it's your turn. Last time I asked him, he got really, really embarrassing. It's your turn. And so one of them, one of the disciples comes up to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples to pray. If you remember when Jesus called his disciples, some of them were already John's disciples. 
Now that they'd seen John, perhaps witnessed it, and here they are, they're coming to Jesus, and they want to know how to pray. Why would they ask? Why would they want Jesus to teach in prayer? What has Jesus been doing up until now in his ministry with, with these disciples? He's been teaching them. He's been teaching them how to conduct themselves in regular life, how to conduct themselves in work. He's been teaching them. He spent his entire three years teaching them how to do life. It's absolutely natural. You see, Jesus has been shaping their lives by his word. And, and if you read Jesus, particularly Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, you, you begin to learn how revolutionary Jesus is. He's completely turning everything they knew about relating to God upside down. We did it yesterday on the course. How he was deconstructing Judaism and reconstructing Christianity in their lives. So his words were shaping their lives. And so it seems natural to the disciples if Jesus is so radically reforming their entire structures of relating to God then certainly he must have something to say on prayer. Well, John did, after all. And so they asked, Lord, teach us to pray. I want you to notice his response then. Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his. And then Jesus begins, he says, when you pray, say. When you pray, say. So Jesus is very, very specific here. We're going to go back to Matthew in a minute. And I think they are two different occasions because they're approaching prayer two different ways. But at least on this occasion, Jesus is giving them words to use. When you pray, look, okay, I've got Brenton here. If I say to him, you know, next time, I want you to go to the shop to me and pick me up a newspaper. And when you go there, I want you to ask for the Daily Express. Do you have one of those here? Okay, we have to travel a long way, okay? Uh, the Daily Express. Right, now, w w I expect him to say that. If he goes up there and picks up, I don't know, well, uh, the messenger, you know, it's not quite what I was looking for, okay? And I think when Jesus is saying here, he's giving his disciples, they've asked him to pray, they've asked him to shape their prayer lives, just as he's shaping every other area of their lives, and his response is, okay, Here's how, here's the words I want you to use. And I think the point is, he's giving his disciples a precise set of words to use, at least on some occasions, when they speak to him. When you pray, say. Here's what a commentator writes on these verses. His opening words, when you pray, say, shows that he intended the prayer to be used just as it stands. Do you get the point? That in Luke, in this instance, Jesus is teaching his uh, disciples, and in this instance, he's giving them a prayer, and the prayer is the function as a precise wording of how they can communicate in a manner that is shaped by Jesus' teaching. And the question simply is, do, we, do they want to be shaped by Jesus' teaching or do their own thing? And they've already invited him in, and Jesus says, this then is how... Prayer, on some occasions at least, and I say some occasions because, because when you hear Jesus speak, 
on any matter, you can be almost certain he speaks only more than once. And every time he speaks, he develops the theme. We're going to look at the Matthew one shortly. But in this instance at least, Jesus is giving his disciples the words to use in prayer. He wants them to pray. The prayer just as he's spoken it. And so I guess we've got to ask the question, haven't we? I'm going to ask myself. When was the last time my prayers were shaped by Jesus' words? And I guess I'm asking, when was the last time I took those words from Luke chapter 9 and prayed them in obedience to Jesus and to be sure that my prayers were lined up with how Jesus would have me speak to the Father. It's a challenge, isn't it? We all know it in some circles. They're done regularly. And here's the, here's, here's the thing about church. Uh, and I don't know if you've, if you've thought of church in this way, but church is a modeling exercise. What do I mean by that? You wear really fancy shirts, make sure they've got a fancy name, and you walk up and down the front. It's a modeling exercise. We call this the catwalk. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's why we don't put Greg up here, because he hasn't got a fancy shirt like me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do you mean? What are you saying? Uh, so, no, what do we mean by that? Church is a modeling exercise. What do I mean by that? Yeah, church. It's church is modeling how we worship outside of this context. So what do we learn from church about how we worship? We sing. Singing is not just done corporately. We what was Naomi doing just? We read the word. What's going on now? Proclamation. We listen to preaching. That's much easier in today's world with access to things. Uh, church is constantly modeling. How we do Christianity. What will we do after the sermon? We will drink tea and coffee and engage in fellowship. Which, by the way, doesn't mean drink tea and coffee. What does fellowship mean? It, does, it can be talking. The word is, is, is from uh, first century society. If you entered, if me and Lynn... Uh, were interested in fishing and we wanted to start a fishing business, we would start, Lynn, you up for this? If we need a boat, we can take his boat, okay? That we would start a fishing fellowship. Now tell me, what is fellowship? No, I don't want to be her friend. I might do business, but friendship is out, okay? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, okay. What is it? We'll start a fishing fellowship. What is fellowship? It's more than that. It's a business arrangement. Okay? It's engaging. Me and Lynn would engage in business. We would work together in order to fulfill a purpose in business. Fellowship. If it's Christian fellowship, what does that mean we're doing afterwards? Forget tea and coffee. It's got nothing to do with it. What, what is fellowship when Christians are together? It's... Is Christians engaging in business, selling dope? Well, what business? 
The gospel business. After the service, seriously, friends, we have to do fellowship. And fellowship is engaging one another in business, a partnership. I am responsible and you're responsible for how you and I are moving on in our relationship, which means you've got to ask the hard questions. When was the last time we sat somebody down and said, tell me, how are you getting on with your Bible reading? When was the last time you read the Bible? How are you getting on in your prayer life? That's Christian business. And that's what we do. So we're modeling. And the idea is we're meant to be modeling. So which means if we're modeling that in church, the next time we see someone in the shops and we're getting into conversation from the church, where has that conversation got to lead to? Fellowship. Hey, brother. Great to see you. Hey, how are you doing? How's your walk with the Lord going? Christian fellowship. So we're modeling everything. And since we're modeling how to live the Christian life, and since Jesus gives us a prayer that we're to pray, and he's expecting this prayer to be prayed exactly the way he's given it to us, because he sums up everything he wants us to utilize in prayer, what ought we do together? Because we're modeling Christianity. What ought we do do together, at least on occasions, pray what? Together what? That prayer. Seriously. We all, I mean, it's the instruction of Jesus. He expects us to do it. If church is to be the model of how we do Christianity, you need to know and be reminded, and I need to know and be reminded, this is, Jesus expects me to pray in his words. And I want to encourage us, and I'd like us to do it. And I haven't done it since I've been with you, and I, and I apologize for that. I would like us to, on occasions at least, pray Jesus' prayer together. In obedience to him, so that we may be shaped by his prayer, and that we may model how we Pray. And so the first point this morning is, friends, is that Jesus expects us to. Just as much as he tells you how to live your life. Just as much as he tells you what a boyfriend and girlfriend can and cannot do together before they're married. Just as he tells us what he wants to do with our money. Just as he tells us what kind of work ethic we're to have. Just as Jesus' words shape every of our lives area, so they must shape how we pray, and Jesus instructs us, at least on some occasions, to pray this prayer exactly the way it's written. And if he wants us to do that privately, he wants us to do it corporately so that we model how we do Christianity. Someone once wrote on the, on the, on the church exit doors, as you were leaving the church, listen to these, you are now entering a worship service. Do you see the point? This isn't the place, this isn't the only place that you do worship. In fact, you only do worship here for how long? 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I don't know how many hours that is. Does anybody know? That's a lot of hours. Okay. Now, what percentage of that is Sunday, 10 till 11.30? 5%? If this is, and here's a challenge, if this is all I do for worship from one Sunday to the next, 
2% of my life, there's something terribly, terribly wrong. Do you see that? And so the point is, this time of worship that we're doing together right now must filter into and shape my worship and your worship from now till we meet again. And may God give us grace to do so. So the first thing in Luke, and I'm going to leave Luke now, is that Jesus gives us and expects us to pray in exactly the way he has said. Secondly, let me take to Matthew, and that's where I want to go to now. So in, in Matthew, we have, it's a different occasion. This is straight after, or within the, his Sermon on the Mount. It's a prayer which is very similar to the one he's asked his disciples to pray precisely, with, with just minor variations. But this time, I want you to notice the key difference in how Jesus presents prayer this time. Remember we says Jesus continually speaks on similar subjects, and each time he develops the themes, he now brings a prayer again. He initiates it this time. Last time, it was initiated by his prayer. This time he initiates it. It's his fantastic, great Sermon on the Mount when he's detailing every detail of how we live the Christian life. And so naturally, if he's telling us how to live the Christian life, he's got to, at some point, you're waiting for it, tell you how to pray. He's got to. Otherwise, he's shortchanging you. You should ask for your money back. And he gets the prayer. He gets the prayer. And this time it begins, and it's, I want you to notice the difference. Last time he says, when you pray, say. But what does he say this time? How? how? And it's a fundamental difference in how that's presented. Who said that? You. Thank you. It's fundamentally different. The first time in that instance, Jesus provides a, a set of words to use to speak to the Father. This time, what's the difference? He's now giving a pattern or a model or a structure for prayer. And so, so a complete change, we're going from words to use verbatim to a model or structure to flesh out. That's the difference here. We're now saying, Jesus, now it's almost as though he's saying, remember that prayer that I taught you? Okay? Depending on which came first, okay, Matthew or Luke. But assuming that um, Luke came first, remember, and the incidents, remember the prayer I taught you, okay? Well, I want you to use that now as the very foundation and structure of how you speak to the Father. And so taking the very same prayer almost, just minor variations, and this one Jesus is setting it forth as a model. Here's what a commentator writes on it. This is from the Pillar New Testament commentary series. Like this indicates that what follows is meant as a guide, a model, rather than a set form of words. This does not mean that the Lord's Prayer may not use, usefully and meaningfully be prayed exactly as it is enunciated, which in Luke it was commanded to be done. He's saying, yes, you can do that in Luke, in Luke but... Okay, be used exactly, but it points us to the truth that Jesus is giving us in Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount, a model that may usefully be employed in fashioning other prayers 
on one instance, it can be a prayer prayed exactly the way it is. At other times, it can be used to model or shape or to hang or to flesh out our prayers. And the point is simply this, friends. You see, and here's, here's the point. When we, just like a child, when he learns to speak, you, you, there's a certain level of accommodation. That's what we meant by our opening illustration. There's a certain level of accommodation because of the little baby so cute. But with maturity, there's expected growth in spirituality, growth in acceptance of protocol, growth in how we relate to our parents. And so we fall. And here's the reality. When you've just come to faith, Lynn, it's quite okay if the best you can do is say, and God, I just love you very much, and you're wonderful. God, and bless the world. Amen. And that's kind of okay. It's kind of cute for a newborn Christian. And there's a level of accommodation by the Father, but just as Christianity is a journey towards maturity, you see, if Lynn only ever stayed in that place where that's all she knew of God, God, there'd be something terribly wrong. Just as we expect maturity to develop our linguistic skills, our prayer, and so we would expect maturity to develop our praying skills. And so Jesus is here giving a prayer which as we mature, we would expect to be increasingly be shaped by how Jesus expects us to pray. This then is how you should pray. Let me look at it with you. So we're saying this is the model. We're suggesting, look, at some t- I'm selling a book on the bookshelf called, uh, uh, what's it called? Praying with Paul. Okay, he takes... Paul's prayer, Carson, and wants to shape our prayers by Paul's prayers. Why would you think he's taking Paul's prayers and wants us to shape our prayers by Paul's prayers? Yeah, we're mature, that's one. Because Paul is shaping his prayers by? And all he's doing, Paul in his praying, is illustrating his Christological praying in his own prayer in different sets of circumstances. So we're not just saying either that that this is there's no models beyond this because Paul gives us models which are also anchored in Jesus' model. But if we're saying if there is one primary overarching model by which Christian prayer can be aligned in order to be truly shaped by Jesus, then this is the prayer. And look, there are other forms. You'd be familiar with the acts. Accept, confess, thanksgiving, and supplication. Have you heard of that prayer model? That's another model, which is fine. But I always scratch my head when people do that one and say, that's really good. What's wrong with Jesus's? You know, what's wrong with Jesus's? And there's nothing wrong with Jesus's. If it's the prayer model, if you want the model for prayer, it's the prayer of Jesus. And I'm not suggesting any other model is bad, but that's okay. But don't neglect Jesus's model for someone else's. And all Paul is doing in his own praying, and the book expands it, is modeling his prayers on Jesus and expanding it. So we're looking at Jesus' model prayer. And what I want to do with you now for the remainder of our time, I'm going to take the first line of that prayer. 
and break it down for us and demonstrate to you in just one line of that prayer. We'll go through every line. It might take a few months, weeks. Okay? Okay. How pregnant Jesus' words are. Just one word. We know how powerful his, his words are. What did his words accomplish at the beginning of time? What did Jesus' words accomplish at the very beginning of time? Creation. His words are that pregnant, powerful, loaded, that he speaks and there's multitudes. Did you realize when he, when he spoke the world into being, that word that he spoke had within it all the detail. Think of all the detail that a DNA strand holds. Okay? When Jesus spoke one word, that one word leashed every detail inscribed and endemic to that. That's how loaded his words are. And when we begin to look at the Lord's Prayer, you soon see why he's telling us how to pray and to how to model our prayer because every word Jesus speaks is loaded and full of absolute necessary truth for doing Christianity. So let me look at it with you. This then is how you should pray. I'm going to take our headings from the prayer so there's nothing uh, razzmatazz or fantastic about our subheadings today that just taken straight from the Lord's Prayer. You probably think, well, Montez, don't worry. There's nothing razzmatazz about your subheadings anyway. So, you know, why break a habit of a lifetime? So I'm just going to take the, the, the elements of the Lord's Prayer and, and just use them as subheadings. Our first one is our Father in heaven. Jesus begins with what would have been a unique way of relating to God. Why do I say that? Jesus begins his prayer in a unique way of relating to God for these disciples. Why do I say that? Yeah. Why is that unique for the, for the disciples, for the Jews? It's personal? Yes, it is that. So why is that so unique then? What? They did call Abraham the father. Yes, the simple point is it's unique because they never referred to God as father in that sense. There were, there were, there were inferences of that relationship. There were, there were models of it. But a Jew never prayed this is absolutely revolutionary. And look, it's not revolutionary because what has he been doing in Matthew 5, 6, 7? He's been doing revolutionary deconstruction and reconstruction work. And it's going to surprise them now when it comes to prayer. That the very first words of prayer are absolutely outstanding. The Jew never prayed to God in this fashion. This is revolutionary. When you pray, Jesus says, pray, begin with our Father. Here's what a commentator says in these words. Fatherhood of God is not a central theme in the Old Testament. Where Father does occur with respect to God, it's commonly by way of analogy, not direct address. And I'll give you one example. Let me take you to Psalm, uh, the next one, please. Psalm 103. Look, typically how, how this was envisaged in the Old Testament. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Uh, so, so there is this 
something modeled. It's, it's, it's a preview into a relationship which is moving towards something greater. But you never pray to God as Father. He was too. Why? What would you think? Why would you think they would never do that? Yeah, he's too holy. I mean, they wouldn't even say his name, would they? And, and, to, and to, to belittle him in this sense, they wouldn't dare address him like that. And Jesus comes in, in his revolutionary deconstruction, reconstruction manner. And he says, when you pray, pray Father. The way to understand the Bible, we did this on the course yesterday. You know, I keep saying that because I'm trying to tease you into thinking, I should have been there. It's not really that because it's just, yeah, it's just relevant to the sermon. Okay. Um, it's something to understand about the Bible is the difference between there's two ways of handling the Bible. There's a systematic way whereby you take the teachings of the Bible, you clump together all that the Bible says about that element of teaching, and then you get what the Bible says about that. So you want to understand what uh, uh, baptism is about. You gather all the texts on baptism, and then you understand baptism. That's the systematic way of handling the Bible. The alternative way and, and, and the way that's preferential, at least initially, is called biblical theology. Biblical theology handles the Bible according to the progression of the revelation. God reveals himself from the beginning to the end progressively. We don't know everything about God when we first meet him. When we first meet God in Genesis 1, he just, he's an abstract and simple being. Why do I say he's a simple being? He's abstract, he's God, he's way out there. It's why I don't encourage Christians to relate to God as God. It's too abstract. I'll develop that in a second. Why do I say he's a simple being when we first meet him? Yeah, we don't know much about him. That's, that is yes. And in particularly in regards to one thing, because he appears simply one. He's one God, and one is a simple equation, isn't it? Simple in any language, in any culture, in any place, even for you, Jerry. Okay? Simple, right? Now, God is a one simple being, yeah? Why, why do I say one is simple? I've kind of explained it. Why do I say one is simple? Because one is one. Okay, what happens as we progress through the Bible? We now come into the New Testament. Okay, what do we learn about this God? He's one. He's, yeah, he's complex. Do you see? We move from simplicity. He's just God. He's just one. That's absolute. That's simple as you can get. Now we see that this one God is now three. He's not three gods. He's one God, but three. We've now turned the simplicity of God into perhaps the most complex phenomenon known to man. Have you ever thought about it like that? That this God and the way what we know about him now has moved in biblical theology from simplicity. He's just one God. I can deal with one. Look, I'm a very simple person. I can deal with one is one is one is one. But we're now told in progressive revelation that this one whose one is one is actually one but three. One God, three persons. One deity, three elements. Not three gods, but one. It doesn't get any more complex than that. 
And so well, what biblical theology tells us is that we discover more and more about God as we move more and more through time, through the Bible. And as we move from Genesis to Jesus, we now see, and that's what those, like Psalm 103, when, when it talks about God as the father of the nation, what he was doing. Can you see what those, those little snippets of God as father were doing in the Old Testament? What was he preparing people for? For a relationship on the deepest level with God. But he was doing it progressively. He starts as this abstract God who's simple. He moves forward into his various forms. There's elements and visions occasionally of this father relationship. But nevertheless, two all inspiring to really relate to him as father. And Jesus comes on, on, the, on the scene. And the only one who could have done it is God himself. And he says to us, You know the God that you've been worshipping? It's complex. He exists in three persons. And when you pray to him, I'm licensing you, says Jesus, on his invitation to relate to him as Father. It's an incredible relationship that Jesus is offering us. The God who was one, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. We're told in John chapter 1, um, in John's gospel, that that one God exists at least in three persons. And as the Bible revelation continues, we realize in somewhere like Acts, where Ananias and Sapphira lie to God, and, and Luke, who's, who's commenting, can say with one breath you've lied to God, and with the next breath you've lied to who? The Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. What is that doing in progressive, in progressive revelation? If, if Luke can say in one breath, commenting on this situation from the apostles' mouths, that you've lied to God and you've lied to the Holy Spirit, what's in progressive revelation? Is that revealing about the, the relationship who God is? He's now spirit too. And so, again, progressive revelation. And so, and so we move towards this, this, this complex being, and Jesus is calling us into prayer, into relationship with him as Father. It means he's not distant. He was distant. He was distant. Do you know how you got close to this God in the Old Covenant? Someone tell me, how did you, how could you, how did you, did you get close to this God in the Old Covenant? The tabernacle, this crazy structure, what else? Just think about it. How you got close to this being? You needed a tabernacle or the temple that replaced it. What else did you need? You needed a sacrifice. What else did you need? You need a priest. How brave did he have to be? Because what might happen when he went to God for you? Seriously. What was God saying about himself and how, and how well, his proximity to people? What was he saying? What was all that imagery saying about you and God? Get away, keep away. Can you see? And what is Jesus doing by, by this term? Father. He is bringing whom, who, he who was distant, abstract, near. Father epitomizes the deepest human relationship. Notice how this deepest human relationship is our Father, what's that doing? What's that doing? So he's Father, but it's, it's it's much more than that. Jesus wants us to begin prayer, our 
father. What's that doing to, to this intimacy now? What's that saying? Family. Can you see? It's now envisaging a brotherhood. Uh, ladies, please don't be offended by the term brotherhood. It doesn't mean we don't like you, although that may be the case in some instances. It just means, it just means, it's, it, it's a generic term in biblical terms, okay? Okay, you know, I, I really don't think, you know, unless we're really, really sensitive that we have to rewrite our Bibles like some barbers out there are doing and change all these terms just so that, that you don't get offended, Lynn. Do we really need to do that? No, come on, guys. What kind of world do we live in when we have to retranslate the Bible just because someone's offended that we've, we've, we've not been politically correct? Don't buy a Bible that does that. Well, mind you, it's hard to not to get a Bible that does that these days. I'll take that back. Okay, but, you know, it's just going crazy. Seriously, brotherhood includes you, Lynn. Okay, in fact, here's the thing. When the Bible talks about sonship, you don't want to change that to daughtership because who gets the, the, who gets the bulk of the inheritance? The son. You don't want to be a daughter in that sense, okay? Sonship is where all the blessings come. When the, when the Bible uses brotherhood, it's talking about all of us. Look, so our father demonstrates that there's a brotherhood. There's a solidarity, isn't there, between that young lady, that's the makeup for all the abuse you've suffered from me this morning, that young lady and that elderly gentleman sitting there, okay? It, 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 it puts the two together. It, it puts them in fellowship. It unites believers. It, it demonstrates, it reminds us of what? When I come into prayer and I'm saying, our father, it reminds me if she really is my sister or in biblical terms, we're in a brotherhood. What does that mean I'm obligated towards that lady? I owe her. What do I owe her? Yeah. She's due. <laughs> Pretend you didn't hear that. Okay. I owe her, right, the whole package of brethrenness, of, of this familyhood. It reminds me when I come to prayer that I have a responsibility towards the rest of the people of God. In, in Philippians, Paul tells us, each of you should not only look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And when I begin prayer, and when I relate to God as Father, and, but before that, uh, that's prefixed by our Father, it's reminding me that I have a responsibility before God to show love and care. Brotherhood towards the people of God. Notice too, uh, in this prayer, how we, 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 we relate to God as someone who's close to us. We relate to each other as a brotherhood. It reminds us of, of this responsibility. But let me move on. We have a Father in our Father who is in heaven. So what do we say that the term fatherhood does in our relationship to God in contrast to what the tabernacle did to our relationship? What do we say the term father does? It brings us closer. Okay. Now, this is an oxymoron. Okay. That's not me. That's, 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 that's what it is. Okay. If you're thinking, yeah, 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 he's one of those. No, this is an oxymoron. Okay. That's two conflicting truths. We have one here. Father brings intimacy 
what does this term in heaven do simultaneously? It, 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 it brings distance. Simultaneously, he's brought near. There's familiarity. There's a sense of love and intimacy. And at the very same breath, Jesus wants us to remember what? He remembers. Yeah, he wants to remember the, 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 the transcendency of God. He is a heavenly being. He lives in a celestial place. He's in a place. When was the last time Morag? Uh, called you Morag. Uh, yeah, would, that, would that have been a compliment? Oh, yeah, okay, compliment, okay? Uh, well, 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 from this point on, you can be Morag. So Morag, uh, <laughs> uh, when was the last time? When was the last time you went to heaven? No, no, I don't think so. How about you? Uh, anyone? Can you see the point? Uh, how far is God from you now? He's in the most inaccessible place. He's above and beyond. He dwells in a realm that we have no access to. This God who's very near is simultaneously far and beyond anything that we have access to. Here's what the Pillar New Testament commentary writes on this. We should not miss the balance in this, open, in this opening to the prayer. We address God intimately as Father, but we immediately recognize His infinite greatness with the addition of heaven. Can you see? It, it simultaneously just puts us both close and far, both near and distant. Have you ever, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the film... Um, Deep Impact, it's really old now. It, it came out in that time and we, we all thought the world was going to end. It didn't. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you think you know when the world's going to end, you're wrong, okay? <laughs> On Jesus' say so. All right, okay. It's, it's, I, of the two that came out, Armageddon was the other one. That one was uh, Deep Impact. This was the best one, in my opinion. It's got uh, Morgan Freeman, uh, one of my uh, favorite actors. Not that you need to know that. But in the film... In the film, it's, 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 there's a big meteor that's coming to the earth and it's going to destroy the place. There's this news reporter, it's the young lady there on the left, uh, I forget her name, um, and, and she's discovered the truth that the government is hiding the fact that the world is going to be hit by a meteor and destroy the majority of the planet. She's discovered it. The president, for fear that she's going she's gonna to publish this, she's a journalist, arranges a meeting with her. The secret services grab her, bring her to this, to this, 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 this random kitchen. He walks in, she's flabbergasted, and, and then they enter into conversation, and then he offers her the privilege of asking the first question at the press conference. And I'm not a journalist, but apparently that's a, a real privilege. Uh, you know, it means you know, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're really in. Uh, and so she's got this opportunity, and so she's on a winner here, and so she began to take some liberties with the president in the conversation, and it says these words to her, if I can remember them correctly, it goes, dear lady, it may seem like we have each other over the same barrel, but it only appears that way. What's he saying? It may look like we have each other over the same barrel. You know, she thought she had you know, some secret stuff on the president, but it only appears that way. What's he doing? What's he reaffirming in that statement? Yeah, it may look like we're equals, young lady, but don't you forget, 
I am the president of the United States of America. That's not a prophecy, by the way, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they don't live very long. Do you know the president of the United States is the most dangerous job in the history of the world? For the number of people who became president statistically, it's the most dangerous job in the world. You get assassinated. You know, pray for the American president. Seriously, it is the most statistically dangerous job in the world. And the point is there that he was readdressing the, something she forgot. And what Jesus is doing in prayer, he wants us to know something has changed since his coming. He is reinventing religion. And we can now relate to him in a way we've never related to him before. He is father. There's intimacy. There's love. There's closeness. But don't you forget He's a transcendent being. He's in heaven. Don't ever forget that. There's never absolute equality here. He's in heaven. This is what Hebrews tells us. The writers of the Hebrew tells us about God. This is New Testament, quoting Old Testament. Worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. That hasn't changed, you see. It's think about progressive revelation between the old and the new. What we are not saying is that God is changing. Do we get that? Progressive revelation isn't suggesting change. It's exactly what it sounds like. What does progressive revelation sound like? What is progressively happening? Revelation, knowledge. It's not suggesting progressive change. So, and this is the thing that I find Christians get wrong very often. Oh, we don't like that God of the Old Testament. He's all fire and wrath. They think he's changed. There is not an iota difference between the God that we find in the Old and the God that we find in the New. And when people talk about God's all wrath and Jesus is all loving, do you know why they say that? Because they haven't read the New Testament properly. Do you know Jesus spoke more about hell than heaven? Are you aware? He spoke more about hell than he spoke about heaven. When you read Revelation and you see this wrath that we're going to see from Jesus' throne, it, it, it makes you... It, it, I don't know the term. It's horrible. It makes all of the Old Testament look tame when you read of some of the judgments. And so the first thing we have to understand about God, he's not changing. He's the same one. He is this awesome being. And nevertheless, as much as his father, we must never forget he's in heaven. There's more. There's heaven, so the heaven speaks of transcendency, distance, okay? There's a bit more. Heaven speaks of, of a place from which he's, he's ruling. He knows all things. In Reve I won't read Revelation because I'm running out of time now, okay? But he speaks about this throne where he's in absolute control. He's, di he's distance, but he's ruling from a place of absolute control where everybody worships him. You know, the sad thing is, I mean, how many people are in this building, 45 or so, at the guests? How many people are in Adelaide? What's the population of Adelaide? 1.2 million? 1.5 million. Yeah, who cares about the other 300? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hollow South Australia, thank you. And we've got 45 people here, maybe some more over the road and some more around the corner. 
You know the sad reality is? So few of our planet worship him. In heaven, when we come to prayer and we remember his heaven in heaven, we're remembering what takes place in heaven. Worship. The entire heavenly realm worships him. It's a reminder, friend, that he's been worshipped by the entirety of the world. In Revelation, let me give you one more because I need to close. Uh, so he's in heaven. He's, or he's been worshipped by all. He's distant. But notice something of his power. I just referred to this earlier, but let me just show you something of that power. The thing about heaven, it's the seat of power. When, when you go into warfare, not that I've been in warfare, uh, some of you, you've got, some, you've got a military guy here, maybe some others, if you want to go into, if you want to go into a country and invade it, as a military strategist, what do you first have to ensure before you send the troops in? You're gonna get battle ready. There's something else. Pardon? You're gonna make sure you're stronger than them. But which of your military task force must you first send in? Not the ground troops. They'd just be killed. They'd be killed. They'd be just taken out. What must you first do? Air Force. Ever before you think of sending a single troop in, unless they're the SAS, you must get, is there a military term? Air superiority. You never send your troops in until you've got air superiority because they'd just be taken out. Once you've got air superiority, then the minions go in. They're safe, you see. You see, when you rule the skies, you rule. Okay? The fact that God's in heaven is telling you what about his authority. He rules. He reigns. He has absolute and endless power. Here's what a commentator stopped right on this. The words in heaven denote the authority and power at his command as a creator and ruler of all things. Thus he combines fatherly love with heavenly power. What this love directs is his power and is able to perform. And the point simply is this, the friends, that because he's all powerful, what does that do to your prayers? So you've started prayer. This is your very first Part of your prayer, you're relating to God as your father. You're relating to everyone around you, all your Christian brothers, all your Christian brothers across space and time. You're remembering he's in heaven. He's worshipped all day long. You're remembering he's transcendent. But beyond that, what is this aspect, the fact that he's got air superiority, what is that telling you or doing to the rest of your prayer? He's gonna, he can answer it. What, why would you waste your time praying to someone who may just not be able to do what you want him to do? And can you see what he's doing to prayer at the very outset? It's telling you he has air superiority. Whatever you bring before him, however complex, however large, however giant, we just pray for David. You know, David, Connie, we're praying for you. Know, you, you you're aware he's battling a form of cancer? Okay? We're praying for him. But why, why would I pray for him? Other than what do we believe? God heals. It's, it's why you pray for your pastor, Nick. Why else would you do that? What did God do for him? 
He healed him. And so, so friends, we, what this part of the prayer is doing for our prayers is reminding us that he has absolute power. It tells us this too, friends. It tells us he can answer any prayer. It gives me confidence. It gives me confidence to pray things that I would never, ever pray for. Otherwise, it gives you a boldness to pray the, 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 the bravest of prayers. Okay, but it does something else. This power tells me he can answer any prayer, but it also does something else for me. It gives me, you see, when those troops go in, going on the ground, they go in confidence because the body is no longer able to apprehend them. What does this praying do to how I experience prayer and life now? It reminds me of what can't do what to me any longer. Yeah, of what? And who? The devil. Yeah, the baddie. He tells me I don't have to be scared of the big, bad wolf. I know of a Christian who said once he was asleep, it was dark, and he woke up in the middle of the night, and the devil was sitting on the bottom of his bed. I, I don't know what he saw, what he looked like, but he said the devil was sitting at the bottom of his bed. And do you know what he said? You know that, do you? He said, it's only you. He said, it's only you. And turned back around and went back to sleep. I can guarantee you, he prayed the Lord's Prayer as a model. And he knew that this father who was close to him was in heaven, and in heaven is the seat of power where all power is exercised. And he knew that from that position of power that even the devil is under his oversight. And though he sat next to him on the bed, he could do nothing against him so long as God was in heaven. And friends, it's why, can you see it's why? It's why this is the model prayer. It captures everything we need for prayer and Christian life. And may this prayer be the model of how we are shaping our prayers. We've got lots more verses to come. You're going to have to wait for those. I want to, I'm going to finish now. Our time has come to an end. We're going to sing shortly. But I want to do with you, I want to give you a moment to reflect. We'll take a moment's silence. But I want, I'd like us to do what I, what I said, and I'd like us to do this at times in our service, if you would join with us. If it really isn't your thing, you can, you can skip it. But I want us to pray those prayers. Now not as the model, but now according to Luke, as the prayer by which we talk to Father.